show everybody welcome to the kyle kolinsky show secular talk whatever you want to call it one or the other interchangeable you know what i'm saying um tucker carlson's making an ass of himself and he can't stop can't stop won't stop uh-uh, uh-uh. um so we're going to be talking about that i got a little bit of good joe biden stuff a little bit of bad joe biden stuff we got a mix my job is to give you the news and information your job is to interpret it however you find appropriate, but there is some good news, and I am sort of excited to deliver it, if I'm being honest with you. Um, we have uh, the White House press secretary is basically bribing the press. That's a fascinating story. It shows you how the relationship between the White House and the press is way too chummy. You want them to have a hostile relationship. You don't want them to be buddy-buddy because then you probably are not going to get an accurate picture of what people are doing. Um, I have two, count them, one, two Pat Robertson stories today because we're throwing it back old-school style, old-school secular talk stuff, you know what I'm saying? Um, and Fox News is littered throughout the entire show. Oh, plus, probably, probably my favorite story of the day is uh, there's a study that came out on – Race framing versus class framing, what politically works better? This is fascinating stuff, really fascinating stuff, and it really is, uh, they did a great job with this study. So anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get started, and I'm going to do that with Fox News number one guy himself, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is a strange fellow. He has takes every now and then that make you do a double take and make you face palm and make you wonder what the hell is going on in his mind. And it makes you wonder, 
if he really believes the stuff he's saying or if he's just putting on an act, does he have Alex Jones syndrome? I mean, we learned that in the court trial where Alex Jones basically argued, I'm just an entertainer. I'm playing a character. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't we hear something along those lines with Tucker as well? I'm not making that up, am I? I'm pretty sure we heard that at some point with Tucker as well. Well, anyway, here we go. Tucker Carlson did an astonishing, astounding anti-mask rant on his show the other night. This grotesque version of Halloween went on for more than a year, and it's still going on. Not even Tony Fauci still pretends that masks are medically necessary. Instead, masks are purely a sign of political obedience, like Kim Il-sung pins in Pyongyang. We wear them because we have to. The only people who wear masks voluntarily outside are zealots and neurotics. How neurotic are they? Well, we know. A Pew survey from last March found that 64% of white Americans who classify themselves as liberal or very liberal have been diagnosed with an actual mental health condition. And you see them everywhere when you walk down the street in any major city. If you dare to go on foot from Union Station to the Capitol, for example, in Washington without wearing a mask, angry Biden voters will snort at you in judgment. How could you? They're saying from behind the gauze. How could you? That's the question we should be asking of them in return. The rest of us should be snorting at them first. They're the aggressors. It's our job to brush them back and restore the society we were born in. So the next time you see someone in a mask on the sidewalk or on the bike path, do not hesitate. Ask politely but firmly, would you please take off your mask? Science shows there is no reason for you to be wearing it. Your mask is making me uncomfortable. We should do that, and we should keep doing it until wearing a mask outside is roughly as socially accepted as lighting a marble on an elevator. It's repulsive. Don't do it around other people. That's the message we should send because it's true. As for forcing children to wear masks outside, that should be illegal. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact Child Protective Services. Keep calling until someone arrives. What you're looking at is abuse. It's child abuse, and you are morally obligated to attempt to prevent it. If it's your own children being abused, then act accordingly. Let's say your kid's school emailed you to announce that every day after lunch, your sixth grader was going to get punched in the face by a teacher. How would you respond to that? That's precisely how you should respond when they tell you that your kids have to wear masks on the soccer field. That is unacceptable, it is dangerous, and we should act like it, because it is. Where do I begin with this one? I mean, listen, first things first, I'll state the obvious, and this is something that the CDC and the FDA just admitted. Um, it is true that when you are outside and you're not really close with other people, you don't have to wear a mask because it's very, very difficult for the, for the virus to uh, transfer outside. So that's a fact. Now, there are caveats, of course, if you are, at, let's say, a concert outdoors and you're elbow to elbow with people, you should wear a mask in that situation because you probably can spread the virus when people are that close outside. Um, but, yes, if you're at a park and you're distanced from other people and you're outside, it's very, very difficult to contract the virus because it disperses when people talk. So usually, like, 
enclosed areas when you're indoors with people. That's where it's much, 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 much more dangerous. So that, those are the facts. Let's just get that out of the way. Everything he's saying here is psychotic. He says wearing a mask outside is no different than people wearing Kim Il-sung pins in North Korea. It's just performative. Okay, I think it's quite different than people wearing the pins of a dictator in an authoritarian country. Call me crazy. See, the thing is, yes, there may be no reason to wear it outside when people are dispersed and not close to each other, of course. But you're also not doing any harm to anybody. Also, he says masks aren't medically necessary. The way he uses his language here is really problematic because he says masks are not medically necessary. He's talking about it in the context of being outside, but there are plenty of people who are going to hear that line, masks are not medically necessary, and they're going to interpret it beyond just outside. Then he calls people who wear masks outside, quote, aggressors. They're not an aggressor against anything. And by the way, you know, I thought about this a lot recently. When you're outside in the winter and you're wearing a mask, the mask is nice to have just to keep you warmer. So I'd be wearing it because it keeps me warmer, not even wearing it because it's like, you know, I, I think I'm preventing myself from getting the virus or preventing myself from giving the virus to anybody else while I'm outside. No, it's just a nice addition to have when it's 30 degrees outside. It keeps getting worse and worse. Quote, next time you see someone in a mask outside, ask firmly but politely, can you please take off your mask? Or mind your own fucking business and leave everybody alone to do whatever the hell they want. Again, is it true you don't need masks when you're outside and people are far apart? Yes, that's true. You don't. But you're, nobody's getting hurt here, downside. None at all. So it's not impacting you in any way, shape, or form if somebody else decides to wear a mask outside. And I'm sure there's some people who wear the mask outside, again, who understand and know that it's much more difficult to get the virus when you're outside. But you want to take away their freedom and their choice to wear the mask. That's what he wants to do. Listen, it's not a crazy idea to wear a mask during a pandemic, even if you are outside. Uh, Who can look at that like, this is crazy or this is insane? Uh, Again, if you're outside and you're away from people, I won't begrudge you not wearing it. I don't wear it in a situation like that. But if somebody does, am I offended by it? Is it, quote, repulsive, the word he used? No, that's not. That's nowhere near repulsive. This is what he chose to do a segment on in the middle of a pandemic, a giant economic downturn, eight wars. We're bombing at least eight different countries, uh, you know, a country where tens of millions of people don't have health insurance, an infrastructure that's crumbling. This is what he chose to take time out of his show to talk about. This is just garbage contrarian bullshit. Like, he he just wants to be a contrarian and say silly things. That's effectively how this strikes me. Then, you know, he really, really, really goes to crazyville because he says um, he compares wearing a mask outside to lighting a Marlboro on an elevator. Those are not remotely similar. When you light a Marlboro on an elevator, there is science that shows there is such a thing as secondhand smoke. Now, if, if you just, you know, encounter it every once in a while, it's no, it's no big deal to your health. It's not a big deal. But, you know, secondhand smoke in the sense of, like, a parent smokes in the house with the kid, and the kid is always in the house with the parent. And so for the developmental years of their life, every day they're breathing in that smoke. That's not good. But, like, lighting a Marlboro on an elevator, that's definitely 
an issue because you're breathing in carcinogens. And you smoking the cigarette affects other people. You wearing a mask outside affects nobody else. Nobody. Nobody. If you're wearing a mask outside, that's your prerogative. There's no downside to other people. Smoking a cigarette on an elevator, there are big downsides to other people. They'll smell it. A lot of people hate the smell of it. Their clothes will stink. It's the secondhand smoke thing that we just discussed. That's just a terrible analogy or terrible comparison. What are you talking about, Tucker? Again, I think he's just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. He views that as like, you know, he's one of those people who just likes to dissent from the crowd. Then he says, wearing a mask outside is like child abuse. For if your kid is wearing a mask outside, that's like child abuse. It should be illegal. And um, your kid wearing a mask outside is like if the teacher was punching the kid every day. How would you react to your teacher punching the kid every day? I mean, there's no other way to put this. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It really is. It's not remotely close to child abuse. Not at all. Having kids wear masks in a pandemic in a situation where it's very unlikely they'll get the virus outside, that's just being overly cautious. That's how I would describe that. That's not anywhere near child abuse. In fact, you can make a case it's the opposite of child abuse. You can make the case it's much closer to child abuse if you have parents telling their kids they can't wear masks indoors during the pandemic or something to that effect. And by the way, in this country, I'm sure people like that exist. We have anti-maskers. We have people who are hard right on the political spectrum. They, the whole thing is a hoax. There is no such thing as this pandemic being real. And so they would tell their kids, you're not allowed to wear the mask even inside. I'm sure that exists. That is much more like child abuse than kids wearing masks outside where it's not really necessary in the middle of a pandemic. He really compared it to child abuse, said it should be illegal. That's what you want the cops enforcing, Tucker. This is where you want the, the cops to put time and energy and resources instead of, you know, focusing on robbery, grand larceny, assault, rape, murder. This is where you want the cops to spend their time harassing kids to take off masks if they're wearing it outside, as if this is a problem in any way, shape, or form. He really compared it to your kid getting punched. Wearing a mask outside is like your kid getting punched. No, your kid getting punched is like your kid getting punched. Wearing a mask outside is a parent who's overly cautious and maybe a little germaphobic. That's it. I mean, it's just, it's so silly. And there's not nearly enough nuance in this in the sense that he doesn't really stress that you, you really should be wearing them inside, particularly if you're not vaccinated. He doesn't stress that at all. So, you know, the takeaway you get from this, there's plenty of people who watch Tucker who are fringe cases. They're borderline cases. They're half on this planet, half on Neptune. And they hear stuff like this. There might be some people who act on this, man. I don't think it'll be a very high number, but there might be a small percentage of his audience who's going to act on this stuff and who are going to, you know, really enforce this stuff, really compare their kid being told to wear a mask outside on the playground at school or something to child abuse, maybe try to sue the school, harass the teacher. I mean, this is what he's calling for. This is what he's calling for. He's calling for people to walk up to strangers on the street and say, excuse me, can you please take off your mask? What happened to the right-wingers who, who pretend like they're all about freedom of choice? Wouldn't this be a choice? It's a choice to wear a mask even if there's only a 
1% chance or less than 1% chance you're going to get the virus outside, wouldn't that be somebody's choice? It's not that they're in favor of freedom. It's that they want to define what people are and aren't allowed to do, and they get angry when their political opponents try to define what people are and aren't allowed to do. So, I mean, this, is, this guy has flip-flopped more times than I can count on the coronavirus in general. Like, he's gone back and forth on COVID-19. Oh, it's a big threat. Oh, I, you know, there was the original reports that he tried to prod Trump at Mar-a-Lago to take COVID-19 more seriously. And there was glowing headlines about him and a few articles that gave him credit. We talked about that on this show. And then he went from that to, like, stages of COVID denialism and then flipped back. And then now he's doing the, this mask song and dance. It's just really fucking stupid. Listen, the official scientific bodies are clearly not perfect. And the leaders, the experts, are clearly not perfect. We saw it with Dr. Fauci when he lied early in the pandemic and basically said, you don't need masks. That's what he said early in the pandemic. Now, the reason he said it, he later admitted, is because they thought we were going to have a mask shortage for frontline workers. So he basically lied to the public to get them to not panic by masks so that the frontline workers can have it. But he lied. And so that undermined the credibility of these scientific bodies. So I get skepticism. Skepticism is healthy. You always want to question power. You always want to question authority, no doubt about it. But let me assure you of something. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a scientific expert. I don't know Dickie McGizak compared to the real experts. And you have to have that humility. You do. And I just don't see that humility with a lot of people in the national conversation. And it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. And again, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And we're left with really idiotic rants like this where talk about overreaching, talk about a ridiculous comparison. I get it, dude. Everybody gets it. And by the way, I think that was most people's interpretations all along of the COVID rules. Like, even when the CDC and the FDA were like, hey, you should probably wear masks outside just to be safe, I think everybody kind of knew, if you're far away from people and you're outside, no, you don't. You don't have to do that. So this isn't like earth-shattering from the CDC and the FDA to admit what most people thought was obvious. So, I mean, this is like they come out and say something that's banal and obvious, and he treats it like it's a giant scandal, and he takes it way too far. And he says, your kid's wearing masks outside is like child abuse. It's like your kid getting punched. You know, you see somebody wearing a mask outside that's akin to lighting a cigarette in an elevator. It's just this is taking it to the extreme and making it beyond absurd. It's hard to imagine, like, the way he talks in this segment, it's hard to imagine anybody reasoning with him. Because he, this is just, this is ideological extremism is what it is. That's how it strikes me. I mean, really, comparing wearing masks outside to wearing Kim Il-sung pins in North Korea, it's a sign of compliance. No, it's a sign of being overly cautious in a pandemic, you fucking doofus. So anyway, man, this guy's a mess. And it's a shame. He's the number one news show on TV. And so there are negative consequences to this. And there are negative consequences to, you know, vaccine denialism, for example. And we got to get to herd immunity. And to herd immunity, you need what, 70%, 80%? I don't know the exact number, so don't quote me, of people vaccinated. And, you know, stuff like this is uh, certainly not helping. Certainly not helping. So, listen, even though it's true, you don't need to wear masks outside, particularly when you're not really close to people. That's, that's the reality. Those are the facts. The idea that 
a kid wearing a mask on the playground or something or a person wearing a mask walking down the street is akin to smoking a cigarette in an elevator or it's akin to child abuse and it should be illegal. Again, I, it's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, next. Where are you going? I am no Superman. Hey, where's my... Uh, here it is. Here's my LED lights. How we roll in this beach. I should do a poll. What color do you guys like the most behind me? That'd be a good poll. All right, let's talk about Cori Bush. Cori Bush went on CNN, and um, she was actually asked a phenomenal question from the interviewer here, so massive credit. Um, she's basically going to be asked, hey, why, don't, why doesn't the left use their leverage like the right often does? And her answer is beyond underwhelming. Senate, uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia has essentially, uh, you know, used what seems to be a veto power against a lot of progressive priorities, including some of the ones that you've uh, mentioned. But in the, in the House, Democrats have this two-seat majority. There are uh, six members of the squad of which you are a part. Uh, what's stopping you from flexing that same power for your agenda? You just said you would vote against a compromise on qualified immunity, are you prepared and the rest of the squad prepared to use that kind of veto power that you have if you vote as a block? You know, it, it, I'm prepared to do whatever is needed to make sure that we, you know, that we, uh, that our agenda moves forward. Um, but I can't speak for the rest of the squad members at the end of the day. My sister Ayanna, Ayanna Presley says it all the time, you vote alone, and you're voting for your district. So you're voting for the people who voted you in. There it is. There it is. I've, I've gotten a lot of shit for saying that exact thing in my criticisms of the Justice Democrats. Again, a group which I co-founded. So I know a thing or two about what the idea was because I was one of the ones who fucking created it. So anyway, I find it hilarious that people who didn't co-create it are telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about when I, when I dissect it and critique them and say, hey, here's what you're doing wrong, here's what you're doing right, so on and so forth. But this is a criticism I've made, that the problem is there's no solidarity, there's no unity, there's no voting together as a block, there's no using your leverage. Here, Cori Bush, to her credit, she's being honest, she just comes out and admits it. She said, hey, and by the way, she doesn't even realize it, but she massively throws Ayanna Presley under the bus here because Ayanna Presley is either on purpose or inadvertently doing divide and conquer of the Justice Democrats, of the squad, of the entire left-wing agenda. If she's the one who's functioning as the leader, and by the way, she probably is because she's been in Congress the longest and she has a different mindset than a lot of the other ones, um, Ayanna Presley says, hey, at the end of the day, you vote alone. At the end of the day, you vote alone. And that effectively functions as divide and conquer and completely undermining the left-wing agenda. When, again, the whole point 
of the Justice Democrats was to get these people elected, knowing we wouldn't have, you know, the majority of people in Congress or even the majority of people in the Democratic Party at this point in time. You get enough of them elected where they can cause a ruckus, where they can stir the pot, where they can take some hostages and be prepared to shoot some hostages, where you can do exactly what the Tea Party did. You get enough of them in there where they can raise hell where they can give their party leadership just as much trouble as they give the opposition party trouble. That was the whole idea. But in order to do that, you need solidarity. You need unity. You need a sub-caucus within the progressive caucus, because a lot of the so-called progressives in the progressive caucus aren't progressive at all. They're total corporate sellouts. So the idea was, hey, let's have like a dozen of these justice Democrats there. And if you have a two-seat majority have 12 people who are actually on the left, you can get whatever you want. You can get whatever you want. Or at the very least, you could get like half of what you want if you play hardball. And instead, Cori Bush just admits there, she says, I'm prepared to do whatever's needed to make our, make sure our agenda moves forward. But at the end of the day, you vote alone. That's what Ayanna Presley tells me all the time. Well, if at the end of the day, you vote alone and you're not voting as a block, then you guys have no power at all. None. Zero. None. But again, all it would take is a handful of these people having some backbone, having some fight in them, standing together and doing what needs to be done. But listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. At the end of the day, they're wimps. At the end of the day, a lot of these justice Democrats, they don't want the mainstream media to shit on them 24-7 and yell at them and act like they're the problem and say, why are you betraying Pelosi and why are you betraying President Biden? What are you doing? They don't want a negative campaign against them, which would come from the mainstream media. They don't want a negative campaign against them from the leadership of their own party because they're scared. They're scared and they have no fight in them and they have no backbone and they also don't understand the first fucking thing about strategy. And so they take the easy way out. And the easy way out is what? This is really important, guys. This is really important. The easy way out is to virtue signal on Twitter all day about how you're for all the right things, but then when it comes time to fight, do absolutely nothing that would materially move us closer to those things. That's the sad reality. Again, this doesn't give me pleasure to talk about this, guys. This doesn't make me happy to talk about this. Nobody, nobody wanted the Justice Democrats to succeed more than me. Nobody. It was, it's the biggest thing I've ever done in my life, co-founding that group. And, you know, it's painful to watch them time and time again fail. Because then, you know, we look at it and we go, what was the point of all that time, all that effort, all that energy, all the campaigning, all the fundraising? What was the point of it? If at the end of the day, they don't know what to do with the power that they were just granted. What was the point if you're not going to do it, if you're not going to fight and this is, a, this is just a, an admission. Yeah, we're not going to fight because you vote alone at the end of the day. Well, if that's the operating philosophy that you vote alone and all of you are acting like that, and they are, then you're never going to get anything done ever. So, you know, don't, don't come back crying when you guys are asking for re-election and you're asking for donations and you can't get them anymore. Because those donations, those small dollar donations came from people who put all their hopes into you that you would actually fight for these things. And, you know, I think those people would even understand if you lost 
75% of the fights and only won 25% of the fights, as long as you're fighting, those people would reward you. But when this is what's going on, of course people are going to abandon you because you abandoned them. You abandoned them. And it's even more nefarious that they continue to virtue signal on Twitter all day about how they're for all the right things, and then they do nothing that would actually materially bring about those things. breaks my heart to hear this. It really does. See, and by the way, the first part of what she said contradicted the second part of what she said. I'm prepared to do whatever is needed to make sure our agenda moves forward. That's the first part. Then the second part is, at the end of the day, you vote alone. Yeah, but if you're prepared to do whatever is needed to make sure the agenda moves forward, that means you and AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Ro Khanna and Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal and Raul Grahava and all of you would need to be unified the logic of what we're talking about here is the exact same as the logic of collective bargaining, unionization. Hey, if one of us talks to the employer, we have no power. They have all the power. They could hire me. They could fire me. They could cut my pay. They could cut my benefits. They could do whatever they want. I have no power. I could just be replaced like that. But if all of the workers stand together, now we have power. Because now nothing's going to get done unless you deal with all of us, unless you bargain with us, unless you negotiate with us the exact same logic when it comes to Congress when you have at least, by the way, a dozen people who are really on the left, whose ideology is really on the left, who will work with you, who want the same things you want. You have a two-vote majority in the House, but, and you have 12 people who not only agree, but you can't unify, you can't show solidarity, you can't work together, you can't tank some must-pass bills. That's the thing a lot of people don't understand, man. A lot of these bills that they could have held up are literally must-pass bills. There is no option. They have to be passed. And so you get extractions. You get some of the things you want. Are you going to win on everything? No. Are you going to win on a lot? Yes. It's the exact same thing that Joe Manchin has successfully been doing and Kirsten Sinema has successfully been doing. Those bills reflect their priorities a lot more than the less priorities. Why? Because they'll say, I'll, I'll tank the whole fucking thing if you don't do what I want. And there's not, there's more people who actually believe in the left-wing ideas in the House than there are the conservative Democrats in the Senate. So it's just, a, it's just math at this point. You could say to Joe Biden, hey, there's, what was it, six or eight people in the Senate who are going to tank the $15 minimum wage? Well, we have 12 in the House who are saying we're not voting for the bill unless you have the minimum wage in it, the $15 minimum wage in it. So I guess you're going to have to get to work on changing the minds of those six people, those eight people. You better use the carrot and stick approach. You better give them whatever they need in order to vote for it. Or say, if you don't vote for it, I'll make your life a living hell and campaign against you and end your career in the Democratic Party. They're not going to do any of that. And, and the sad reality is, and you all know this is true, you all know this is true. They didn't, they didn't want to do force the vote because the argument was, we're so many votes short, what's the point, right? Okay. Accept it or don't accept it doesn't matter. Because one of the points AOC made is we need to save our power and our leverage for when we have an issue where we're close. Then we'll flex our power and use our leverage. Then we'll force the vote. And what example did she give? $15 minimum wage. Well, then the $15 minimum wage fight came along, and it was part of a reconciliation bill, a must-pass reconciliation bill. And they didn't fight. In fact, Ro Khanna wrote a letter to Joe Biden that said, yeah, listen, I really want you to put that $15 minimum wage in there. And I'm telling you, this is my official statement that I'm in favor of that $15 minimum wage. But if you take it out, will I vote for the bill? Probably. 
There it is right there. There it is right there. And that's every non-fight fight that these guys have. I sent you a letter saying I want something, and when you reject it, I'll still vote for the thing. And don't worry, we're not unified, we're not organized, we don't have solidarity, so you'll end up getting whatever you want, and Joe Manchin will end up getting whatever he wants. Ayanna Presley is the one who was whispering in everybody's ears, the leader behind the scenes, with all the squad, a lot of the Justice Democrats, hey, get serious. At the end of the day, you vote alone. That's the opposite of the mantra of the Tea Party, where they banded together on everything, threw their weight around and got a lot of what they wanted. Oh, this breaks my heart, man. This breaks my heart. See, and a lot of this, you can blame me, because again, I was naive enough to think, if I just get people, or we try to get people in Congress who agree with us on the issues, they agree with us on Medicare for All, they agree with us on free college, they agree with us on ending the wars, they agree with us on a $15 minimum wage, if you just get people in there who agree with us, they'll figure it out. They didn't figure it out. The people weren't vetted for strategy, and the people weren't vetted for leadership qualities. And now that's coming back to bite us in the ass. They're, they don't know dick about strategy, and they, none of them show leadership qualities where they're willing to stick their neck out there and get a round of negative press in the media. I would relish that fight. I would relish that fight. All you got to do is organize a handful of them, and then you got it. And then you control the narrative. And when the media comes after you, you go back at the media. Go ahead. Come after me. I'm on the side of 80% of the American people with what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for a $15 minimum wage. I'm with the majority of Americans. I'll tank this fucking bill, and I'm tanking it on behalf of the American people. The American people send their regards. You want to run negative stories about me? Go ahead. I'll stand on my own two feet, and I'll counter you, because I'm right. Nobody wants that negative press. Nobody wants the punishment from leadership. So here we are. Everybody votes alone. Nothing gets done. And they all run back to Twitter and virtue signal all day and pretend like they're heroes. You're anything but heroes. You're cowards. Okay, next. Here we go. For once, I have good news for everybody. And um, there really aren't that many caveats. I mean, I guess there's one caveat. The caveat is, um, of course, the $15 minimum wage at the federal level has been completely abandoned. Biden didn't fight for it. The left didn't fight for it. They could have. They could have banded together. They could have said, we'll tank the bill unless the $15 minimum wage is there. Get Joe Manchin to do it. Come hell or high water. They could have done it. They didn't do it. Okay. But the second best thing is now happening. So I think this is NBC News. They say, President Joe Biden signed an executive order Tuesday that raises the minimum wage for federal contractors and tipped employees working on government contracts to $15 an hour. The raise from $10.95 an hour will begin in January, and agencies must implement the measure no later than March. Biden has signed a separate order to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for federal employees. The new order also directs federal agencies to raise the tipped minimum hourly wage to $15 by 2024 and to ensure that tipped employees working on federal contracts earn the same minimum wage as other employees on federal contracts. So the last time there was an increase in the minimum wage for federal contractors, Obama did it. Um, 
Obama did not raise the tipped minimum wage for federal contractors. And the number Obama raised it to was $10.95 an hour. That was under Obama and Biden, okay? Joe is raising his $15 an hour for federal contractors, for federal workers, and, and for tipped employees working on government contracts. So in other words, there's a sub-minimum wage. He's saying, no, no, no. Not if you get a contract from the federal government, there's not. There's no sub-minimum wage. Everybody's pay, getting paid $15 an hour. So in other words, he's saying there's no exception to the $15 an hour law if you're a federal contractor, a federal worker, or even a tipped federal worker, a tipped employee working on a government contract. That's big. And he also did it for workers with disabilities. Um, now, a very good reaction to this would be, because it was my reaction, okay, I mean, this sounds wonderful, and it is wonderful, right? I mean, this means some people are going to get a raise. But it's got to be, it can't be that many people, right? How many people are getting a raise? Because it's only, again, federal contractors, federal workers, and tipped employees working on government contracts. Well, turns out that's actually really not the case. It's way more people than I initially thought. So this means about 390,000 people are getting a raise now. 390,000 people. And if I remember correctly, this was one of the things, remember when Obama was on his way out, he started doing some um, executive orders that were good. He was freeing nonviolent drug offenders. And one of them, if I remember correctly, was this raising the, the um, federal contractor minimum wage and federal worker minimum wage to $10.95 an hour. Biden's doing it, and he's doing it early on in his administration. And again, it impacts 390,000 workers. So listen, man, you guys know. I'm a skeptical dude. In fact, you could even call me cynical when it comes to politics. I think that's a fair characterization. But you've got to give credit where credit is due. This move helps so many people. It helps so many people. And there's one other part of this that I love that Biden did, because it's a sort of a, a gangster-ass move. In his announcement on this, he said, this isn't going to impact the taxpayers in any negative way. And you might be like, wait, what? So it's not going to cost anything to the taxpayers. That's what Biden's arguing. And people, I don't understand. How can you say that? You're raising the, the minimum wage to $15 an hour for these people. Where are, you gonna, like, where are you going to get the money from, right? That would be the counter argument. He goes, no, when you give people at the bottom $15 an hour, that has reverberating effects through the rest of the economy where um, it improves a lot in the economy. Instead of like a trickle-down approach, it's almost like a – trickle-up approach, although that's a weird way to describe it that way because water doesn't trickle up. But anyway, it's like it has that effect. It's not supply-side economics. It's demand-side economics. So this has positive effects that in the long run mean it pays for itself. When you give people at the bottom more money and they immediately spend it in the economy and it impacts the economy in a positive way overall, this really pays for itself. Now, is that accurate? For this, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if it's accurate. I know that there are instances where left-wing policies have this result. You know, for example, um, free college. There's been a number of studies on free college where they say, yeah, it might cost money up front. It costs, I think, $60 billion or $80 billion or something like that up front. But really, in the long run, it pays for itself. Because, you know, you end up, those people end up getting better jobs, getting paid more. It helps the overall economy. 
and then the, the tax revenue that you're able to raise as a result of that without changing the rates offsets the cost of the program. That's the argument. So we know it's the case with free college. Again, is it the case with this $15 minimum wage move? I don't know, but I sort of like the fact that Biden just asserted it because, it, you know, he's trying to nip in the bud the right-wing arguments of like, hey, you pay for it. 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 And he's like, I don't have to pay for anything. I don't know what you're talking about. It pays for itself. Fuck off. Go away. That's kind of a boss move, son. That's kind of a boss move. So listen, um, facts always have to come first. Fact of the matter is they caved on the $15 minimum wage, putting it in the last reconciliation bill. They, they hid behind the Senate parliamentarian, which is a low-level staffer who has no power. They could have just overridden that one or fired them and gotten a new one. Gotten a new one. They didn't do that. So they failed miserably on the $15 an hour minimum wage. And my suspicion was that's probably because Biden doesn't really support $15 minimum wage. Certainly doesn't support it enough to fight for it in the way he would have to fight for it. Um, now my analysis is slightly different because clearly he's in favor of a $15 minimum wage. He just did it for 390,000 federal workers, both contractors and actual in-house federal government employees and the tipped workers. So this tells me he actually does support it. In terms of at the federal level, it, I think he thought the fight was too daunting and it was too difficult, so he abandoned it. But this is the second best thing. Now, listen, don't get it twisted. 390,000 workers is nothing compared to if you raise it at the federal level. Um, there would be millions and millions and millions of workers who feel the benefits at the federal level. So they cannot and should not give up on that fight. And they need to actually fight for it. Um, but... At the same time, you have to give credit where credit is due, because I did not expect Joe Biden to do this, and Joe Biden did this, and this matters. And if you don't think it fucking matters, go talk to one of the 390,000 people who just had their wage raised from $10.95 an hour to $15 an hour, because it fucking matters to them. That's for damn sure it matters to them. And it said, I forgot, they said the what percentage of an increase that is. I think it's like a, they said 37% increase or something like that. You can do the math and check if that's accurate. 37% raise, son? That's amazing. That's wonderful. And so on this one, you guys don't hear me say it often, but you got to be fair. you got to be objective. Credit to Joe Biden. Credit to Joe Biden. That's what he gets for this because this is the right thing to do. And as people who are on the left, we need to be as objective as possible and as fair as possible. And you give credit where it's due, wherever it may be. I don't care if it's a Republican who does the right thing every now and then, I'll give him credit. Or if it's a Democrat who does the right thing every now and then, I'll give him credit. Because I don't really care about any of the partisan tribalism bullshit. All I care about is whether or not the policies I favor, which I think will help this country, get implemented. And this is one that's getting implemented. And that makes me really, really happy. So, again, the next big test for Joe is just how much are you actually withdrawing from Afghanistan? Because a lot of the articles say, hey, it's a full withdrawal. And then some of them say, well, no, he's going to keep the, you know, boots on the ground in terms of special ops people and contractors and so on and so forth. We'll see what ends up happening. and That'll determine how much credit I give him. You know, I want to see a full withdrawal. There are some elements of the CIA who think it is going to be a full, full withdrawal, meaning they're getting out, too, because they're panicking and running hit pieces on Biden and the media. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if he fully gets out. I'll give him massive credit. If he doesn't, I won't. In fact, I'll go after him if he doesn't. But in terms of this story, credit to old Joe.
All right. We go from giving Joe credit to the opposite. Giving Joe Biden credit. Now I'm going to give Joe Biden the opposite. Buried in a Washington Post article about Joe Biden and what he's working on now behind the scenes, we got this little gem. You can see the highlighted portion here. Despite pressure from Democratic leadership, White House officials are also prepared to table a measure they had included in earlier drafts aimed at reducing consumer and government spending on prescription drugs, a measure fiercely opposed by the pharmaceutical industry, the people said. So you know what that means? Joe Biden just like the president before him and the president before him uh, is caving on having Medicare negotiate for better drug prices, having the federal government negotiate for better drug prices. See, the way it works now is other countries negotiate with pharma to get better prices. And, you know, other countries generally have uh, national health care systems, so the Government negotiates on behalf of the citizenry, and they get decent prices. Um, And the U.S. has a provision that the government cannot negotiate with pharma for better prices. So in other words, whatever pharma says to pay, the U.S. pays. Now, we get insanely screwed with this being the case, because oftentimes what happens is foreign governments get really good deals on the drugs, and so... Pharma tries to make all their profits by hosing us here. And so that's why you have just completely out-of-control drug prices in this country. It's one of the reasons why you have completely out-of-control drug prices. And every administration comes in saying, federal government is going to negotiate for better drug prices. And every single time they cave. Now, why? Why is that? Listen, I honestly think it's a naive position if you believe they just hear out the arguments and make the objective decision that, better to just leave the American people getting price gouged. Um, I think the reality of it is special interests and lobbyists get their ear. And pharma donates a tremendous amount of money to both political parties. And so really, at the end of the day, they say, we own you, we control you. And That's why they end up acting in the best interest of pharma and against the best interest of the American people. And that's where we are. Obama backed off on this and Trump backed off on this. They both backed off on this. Lowering drug prices, negotiating with pharma. And ultimately, I think it's because of the the influence pharma has in Washington, D.C. and how they've basically bought both political parties to some extent, certainly various politicians. Certainly, what we learned about Biden is that one of his top advisors' brother is lobbying on behalf of healthcare companies, including pharma, and this could be that guy's influence, for example. You know? It's insane because it shows you they're not really making the decisions based off of what's best for the American people, what the constituents want. If you polled this, and maybe they have, I, if they have, I haven't seen it or I forgot it, but 
I'm sure this polls at like 90% or something crazy. 80 to 90% of the public is like, yeah, negotiate for better prices with pharma. But they're going to do the opposite. This is a lot like the debate going on right now with the um, intellectual property rights, the patent rights for the vaccine. So the rest of the world is screaming at the United States of America to lift the intellectual property rights for pharma when it comes to the vaccines. Why? Because developing countries desperately need to get their hands on the vaccine. And to this point, Biden hasn't done it. And the media keeps assuming, oh, he's thinking about it, he's making up his mind. The reality is, Adam Johnson pointed this out, I think he's correct. The reality is Biden opposes lifting the intellectual property rights for them, but he doesn't want the bad press of saying, I'm against lifting the intellectual property rights. Because really, and you know, I use this word on purpose, this decision is genocidal. If you don't lift the intellectual property rights, then you can't get nearly as many vaccines created in these other countries, which means not nearly as many people can get it and they can't get it quickly. And so many people are going to die as a result of that. It is truly a genocidal policy. And that's what this reminds me of, because you have one side, which is clearly the correct thing to do, and the other side, which is a psychopathic thing to do, and they're doing the psychopathic thing. And I do think that's in part because of the influence of corruption, money in politics, legalized bribery. Now, I'm sure that lobbyists have some sort of arguments that they make in order to deflect and obfuscate, but really, you should be able to see through them if you're an adult with a functioning brain. Like the thing that um, Big Pharma says about the intellectual property rights for the vaccine, they say, oh, the reason why we need this in place is not because we're against these other nations getting the vaccine, and it's not because we care so much about our profits. No, it's because if we lift the intellectual property rights and the patents and everything and we let them do it, they have shitty facilities where they make the vaccines and the stuff is going to be unsafe and then people are going to die because they're going to make the vaccines wrong and it's going to be cut with dangerous stuff. And we, can't have, we care so much about the people in, this, in these countries making sure they get a safe and effective vaccine that we just can't lift the intellectual property rights because we can swear by the quality of our products. We can't swear by the quality of, you know, some vaccine maker in India put, putting together a vaccine with our formula. They're going to mess it up and we can't have that. But of course, that's just a nonsense, bogus rationalization because they do care about their bottom line. They do care about the profit motive. And, uh, you know, they've made that argument in moments of honesty. They've made that argument. Like, why would we do any research and development if at the end of the day, you just get rid of our intellectual property rights like that? And the response to that is, you jackasses don't even do most of the research and development. Most of the research and development for all these drugs and vaccines and medicine, it's done with public money. I believe the number is $41 billion the National Institute of Health spends on research and development for new drugs. So taxpayers pay for it, then you swoop in and get the, the intellectual property rights to it, and then you double charge us on the back end. You price gouge us on the back end when the taxpayers paid for the research up front. And they won't even let developing countries use the intellectual property to make their own vaccines to save lives. And instead, what we're getting from, from Biden, this is classic Biden in many ways, is a bullshit middle path. So what's he saying? Oh, we have a surplus of which vaccine? Is that? I think it's the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the U.K. vaccine. Somehow we have some of those. 
Biden says, oh, we're going to share our surplus AstraZeneca vaccines with India because they're having a terrible outbreak right now. And so he's trying to split the difference. Oh, we'll give you some drugs and we'll give you this vaccine that we have stockpiled waiting around. It's not, none of that is enough. That's not nearly enough. You need to lift the intellectual property rights. You need to allow whoever can make the vaccine to make the vaccine. And there's this other lie out there that, oh, they just don't have the capability to make it. So the problem is with materials. Nonsense. Other countries have been screaming at the top of their lungs, let us make the vaccine. And we're not here because pharma does care first and foremost about their profit, and they own the government, and so the government is siding with them. It truly, truly is genocidal, and I don't use that term lightly. And, of course, here you have Biden caving on negotiating for better drug prices, again, because of the influence of pharma in Washington, D.C. So if you don't see how corruption is the main problem, I don't know what to tell you, because it clearly is. It clearly is. You would not have these problems if you had clean elections by law on private money in politics. So you have clean elections. The other thing is I would punish corruption way more severely than we do now. I I think corruption should be life in prison. Punish corruption like that, only have clean elections, so therefore the politicians will represent the people and not the special interests, not the corporations, not the billionaires, not the lobbyists, and we'd be much better off and the decisions would be reasonable. This is anything but reasonable. Okay, next. So this is something that happened about a week ago, but I had to share it with you. I mean, the reason I'm showing you this is because there are plenty of people who would see this and say, I don't know what's wrong with this, but that is definitely not the right reaction. Take a look and then we'll discuss. Um, Great. Well, thank you, everyone. As I promised yesterday, I promised snacks. Um, I did not bring them in here, but my mother-in-law made homemade chocolate chip cookies for you guys. So um, there's one for each of you in here. We'll do it in a COVID-safe way. Um, But thanks, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the people who just got delicious homemade cookies from Gentaki do you think they're more likely or less likely to ask very tough, aggressive questions on serious issues the next time they have a press hearing? Again, you might be dismissive of this. You might say, hey, it's a little thing. I don't think it's a little thing. I think it's actually very important in the same way that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is very important. Um, you cannot have this cozy, comfy, happy relationship between the White House and the press because then they're just stenographers to power. Because humans are only human. And, you know, part of human nature is, hey, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so they do little favors for each other. They hang out with each other. They're buddy-buddy. And the press clearly winds up on the side of power, on the side of money and influence and the administration. And then they just view their job as, how can I rationalize and justify and spin and put these things in as positive a light as possible? And listen, you've seen the effects of this. Not this exact moment, but you've seen the effects of this cozy relationship. Um, So a great example of that is all the misleading headlines when Biden did his initial executive orders. Remember when he did the executive order on eliminating student loan debt? 
every headline was like, Biden to eliminate student loan debt. And then you read the specifics and it's like, he's only eliminating less than 1% of the $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. He's only eliminating it for people who went to literal for-profit scam colleges. But 99 point whatever percent of people who have student loan debt are not getting relief. Or the private prison thing. The headlines are like, you know, Biden bans private prisons. You read the specifics. It's only for the Department of Homeland Security. And they have a tiny percentage of all the private prisons. 60-some-odd percent of ICE prisons are private prisons, and those are staying open. This is what happens. The Buy American Executive Orders. I had to read, you know, um, I had to read like six or seven articles on that before you got the real story about what's in the executive order. The executive order didn't have much teeth. It wasn't the real Buy America executive order that we wanted, which mandates that everything the federal government buys is made in America. But it was hard to get the truth because the press was spinning it, putting a positive spin on it for Biden. The kids in cages thing. All of a sudden, they're not kids in cages. All of a sudden, they come up with high-minded sophistry to explain the temporary holding facilities or whatever they call them because they don't use the same harsh, vituperative language that they used against Trump because they like Biden. The press, by and large, in this country, most of the outlets, are fans of the corporate Democrats. They're not fans of the left flank of the Democrats. They're fans of corporate Democrats. They hate Republicans. They hate the left flank of the Democrats. They like the corporate Democrats. And I think all the evidence points in that direction. So what's happening here is effectively a bribe. I'll be nice to you. You be nice to us. That's what we're seeing here. So you're not going to get a press that does the job that the press is supposed to do. And what is the press supposed to do? The press is supposed to be adversarial towards power. They're supposed to be looking out for the average American, explaining what's going on, explaining what the powerful are up to, what corruption is going on, what bad decisions are being made. Now, you tell the truth, of course, always. So if there's something good that happens, tell the truth. But you are generally supposed to be adversarial to hold these people accountable. Your job in the press should be, hey, Biden said he was going to do X, Y, and Z on the campaign trail. Now he's not doing X, Y, and Z. What's going on here? What's your excuse? Why is this the case? Hold them accountable. Hold them accountable when it's a Republican in the White House. Hold them accountable when it's a Democrat in the White House. But instead, you get a totally different scenario. You get kid gloves, particularly for the Democratic presidents. So... What the Democrats have learned that the Republicans haven't really caught on to yet is these people are easy to schmooze. They're so easy to schmooze. Invite them to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, give them a free meal and a couple glasses of wine, and all of a sudden they're your stenographers. All of a sudden they do nothing but propaganda. Give them some delicious cookies, and you can hear it in the tone of their voice how excited they are when they say this. So there's, it's much less likely they're going to be aggressive and hold them accountable and be adversarial. I'm sorry, it's true. Again, you might think I'm blowing this out of proportion, but you should never, ever, ever have that chummier relationship with power. Because if you make friends with the people you're supposed to be reporting on, you're going to end up just being their propagandist. And that's what they are. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, Pat Robertson, and then we'll discuss this amazing study on race framing in politics versus class framing. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more.
right, bitch, I'm back. Had an emergency, emergency snack. So I was feeling a little bit lightheaded, yo, but I'm better now. <clears throat> all I needed was a little bit of food in me. That's all I needed. Okay. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk about Pat Robertson now. Pat Robertson is still out there doing his thing, and by his thing, I mean mumbling in a barely coherent way uh, on TV, even though he should probably be in a nursing home. So here he is. You are going to have to try to make sense of this. He's going to talk about woke corporations, but his thought process seemingly craps out, and he drives into a ditch. Watch. What we're saying is what happened in the Nazis when the Nazi party took over a lot of Adolf Hitler. Krupp was a great uh, steel company. IG Farmer was a great chemical company. And other of the businesses, you figure Messerschmitt who made the planes and uh, Volkswagen probably made some of the cars. And there are a whole lot of other businesses in, in Europe that joined in the work of Adolf Hitler. So what are our corporations in America doing? They're turning against their nation, or at least the prevailing ethic, and they're so-called woke. Uh, that's the name that I'm, I'm not sure if we have a meaning for, but it means in addition to pushing their products to you, they're going to tell you about uh, uh, their politics. And you guessed that it, it's going to be far-left liberal politics. So what are the serious consequences of this woke attitude of corporations for Christians? It wasn't good during the Nazis, and it's probably not good now for us. Come on, son. The problem with Nazis is that they were too woke. That's the problem with the Nazis is the wokeness. It wasn't the gas chambers and the Jew hatred and the eugenics and the world wars and the massacres and everything. It was the wokeness. Damn Nazis. Too woke. Bro, what are you saying? How on earth do you connect woke corporations and Nazism? I see... No connection. None whatsoever. Uh, listen, I, we could try to make sense of his reasoning, but it ain't going to get us anywhere because I already tried this three times. He basically says, What we're seeing is what happened with the Nazis. When Hitler took over, they had this big steel company and this other company, and the company was taking over. Corporations are turning against our nation. The wokeness is the problem, even though the wokeness doesn't have a meaning. I'm not sure it even has a meaning. Then why are you talking about it? Let me give my strong take on this thing that I don't know the meaning of or definition of. Bro, what are you doing? What are you doing, Bear Robinson? What are you doing, Bear Robinson? What are you doing? Okay, that, listen, it's hilarious. Come on, it's hilarious. The, the other thing I love about this is putting the Nazi part aside, even though we shouldn't um, the thing I love about this is he says, corporations are turning against our nation. And the argument is because of wokeness. 
He didn't say Dickie McGee's ex about corporations turning against our nation when you have some of the most profitable corporations in this country paying zero in taxes. They have a team of lawyers and a team of lobbyists, and they get away with paying no taxes. This is as regular working people have to pay a lot of taxes, whether you're a teacher or a construction worker or an accountant or just a regular average Joe or Jane making this country function. You have to pay your taxes, but Amazon has to pay no taxes, and General Electric has to pay no taxes, and some companies even have a negative tax rate where they get net subsidies from the government. So that is not turning against our nation. It's not turning against our nation to do tax avoidance. It's not turning against our nation to do business with countries that are genocidal, like Saudi Arabia with what they're doing in Yemen, for example. That's not turning against our country. What's turning against our country is some virtue signaling bullshit that they don't even believe. And by the way, that is the fact about corporations. The whole reason they go all in on the wokeness stuff is to deflect and obfuscate from the fact that they're not paying their taxes, their workers are paid like shit, they're doing tax avoidance at an incredible level, and they're probably working with criminal thug governments, dictatorships and whatnot around the world. What a goofball, man. Imagine making that connection, the Nazis and wokeness. This is what happened with the Nazis. The Nazis all dyed their hair pink and set up safe spaces on college campuses. And the Nazis really believed in Black Lives Matter. I can tell you that for sure. I know that for sure. So this is what happened with the Nazis. They got too woke. Wokeness is bad even though I don't know what it means. Who's got my Percocet? Who's got my Percocet? I would like to hang out with Pat Robertson, but only for that reason, because he definitely has, like, a spare seven or eight bottles of Percocet, and he can hook a brother up. We will come back to Pat Robertson later. Believe you me. All right, now we're going to go to probably the most important story for this show today. This says, this says so much. Fuck, I dropped my, my thingy-majiggy, my uh, LED light thing. One of the things that uh, I've been attacked for on this show repeatedly is that I'm, I'm accused of being a class reductionist. And, you know, the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of that is, you know, you don't think race matters at all. You don't think that social issues matter at all. Um, you only care about class stuff. And you believe that Racism will fully go away if we just bring about justice in the economy. Um, now, of course, you know, that is not what I believe, but far be it from me to tell people what I believe. It's much easier for other people to tell me what I believe, and then, you know, you take them at their word. But anyway, um, so we have a new study that came out, and a political science study from Yale, some undergraduates 
at, at Yale did this study. And um, the results are fascinating. So take a look at this. So Mika English, who is one of the people who did this study, Democrats have started using racial justice framing to promote their progressive policies. Like student debt relief is good because it will close the racial wealth gap. Is this language helpful for their cause? In a new working paper, uh, Jay Calla, who's the other um, researcher here, says, we find no. Let me give you more. They say, racial equality frames and public policy support survey experimental evidence by uh, Mika English or Micah English and Joshua L. Calla. So here's the, the abstract. How do racial attitudes shape policy preferences in the era of Black Lives Matter and increasingly liberal views on racial issues? A large body of research finds that highlighting the benefits of progressive policies for racial minorities undermines support for those policies. However, Democratic elites have started centering race in their messaging on progressive public policies. To explore this puzzle, in this paper we offer an empirical test that examines the effect of describing an ostensibly race-neutral progressive policy with racial framing, as used by Democratic elites on support for that policy. To benchmark these effects, we compare a race policy frame with class, race and class, and neutral policy frames. We demonstrate that despite leftward shifts in public attitudes towards issues of racial equality, racial framing decreases support for race-neutral progressive policies. Generally, the class frame most successfully increases support for progressive policies across racial and political subgroups. Hmm. What do you know? So, in other words, the point being made here is a point that um, we've made a number of times on this show, which is even if you're somebody who prioritizes racial justice on its own as distinctly separate and apart from economic justice, even if this is the way you think about politics, the way in which you can get wins on racial issues is to frame them in a class kind of way. So in other words, the people who are most interested and most obsessed with that topic you're more likely to get wins if you frame these things in a class-conscious way first and foremost. In other words, you actively push people away, turn people off, make them dislike you more and dislike your issues more if you frame it in a racialized way. So listen, again, this is a point I've been attacked for making, but I'll make it again. It is, it, I'm sorry, it's just factually true that universal solutions actually close the racial wealth gap and close and, and ameliorate race issues the most. Now, that's not to say that every race issue is solved if you do these things, but it is to say that if you talk, for example, about legalizing, taxing, and regulating drugs and freeing every nonviolent drug offender. See, I just spoke about that in a totally race-neutral way. And the effect of those policies would be actually to really 
almost bring about a form of racial justice because the drug war disproportionately targets minorities. Um, and, you know, even people who are arrested for doing drugs, selling drugs, disproportionately that impacts minority communities. So if you legalize, tax, and regulate drugs, that helps minority communities the most. And if you free every nonviolent drug offender, that helps minority communities the most. Now, I can talk about that by coming out here and saying, putting the cart before the horse and saying, we need to bring about racial justice and we need to make sure that we, you know, um, fix this issue for our minority communities, for our black and brown brothers and sisters, and that's why I'm in favor of X, Y, and Z. The, the point of this paper is to say, when you do that, you're convincing fewer people or turning people against you, whereas if you discuss it in a race-neutral race way, even though you're bringing about racial justice, people will support it largely because you're framing it in a race-neutral way. I'll give another example. This one will be on women's issues. Um, the minimum wage. And actually, I think this works for minority communities as well. If you raise the minimum wage to a living wage, the biggest beneficiaries of that, women and minority communities. Now, what the Democrats are doing these days is they'll go out there and say, because we need to bring about racial justice and because we care about our black and brown brothers and sisters and because we're feminists and because we care about women's issues, that's why we need to do this policy although a lot of them don't support $50 minimum wage, but that would be the argument they would make. Whereas, again, the point of this paper is, if you just say, raise the minimum wage to a living wage, because people who work full-time should make enough money to survive, you know, and if the minimum wage kept up with what it was in 1968, it would be over $10 an hour today, so it's worth less today than it was in 1968. If you talk about these things in a race-neutral way, you get more support for this, and the end result could be justice for, on women's issues and justice for black and brown people, but you're more likely to get the support if you frame it in a race-neutral way, whereas if you lean into the race angle of it, you're more likely to turn people off. Now, you can determine why you think it is that those are the results. You could even argue, hey, people have a certain, some sort of like latent bigotry and latent racism, which is why... They take more kindly to the race-neutral framing. Whatever your answer is to that question, I don't care. But the facts are the facts. And the reality is, without a doubt, the way you get more people on your side and the way you're more likely to win these debates and win on these policies is to frame it in a race-neutral way. That's what this research shows. So there, there's no doubt about that. Okay, I just want to be clear. Now we know that when you talk about it first and foremost from a class perspective as opposed to a race perspective, you're going to broaden the tent. You're going to bring more people in. Whereas if you do it in a racial way, that doesn't happen. Fewer people are interested. So now I know a lot of people are not going to like the results of this, but it doesn't matter. That's the whole point of empirical research. You find what is objectively true regardless of what people feel about it. And so I guess the point that I would stress is even if you put these issues first and foremost, even if you say, I care more about the race stuff than I do the class stuff, you know, I have a more ambiguous ideology on class stuff, I have a more set ideology on race issues, even if that's what you believe, if you frame these racial issues in a race-neutral, class-focused way, you're more likely to win on it and bring about the world you want to see. 
you're more likely to bring about that racial justice if you cloak it in class and universalism. Because listen, there is, it is true that if you lean more into identity and lean more into sectarianism, by definition, that excludes more people in language. It does. I mean, that's the whole point of it. So the more you stress how everybody's in the same boat and we're all together and we take a universal approach, you know, we're all in this together. The more you stress that, the more you highlight the areas where we have common experiences and interests, shock, shock, the more likely you are to win, the more likely you are to get more people on your side. And again, there's going to be plenty of people who don't like the results of this, but I can't stress it enough. It doesn't really matter if you like it or not. You know, and I, one of the main things that I care about on this show is to try to make it so that the left is not obsessed with being an edgy little subculture group. Because I actually care about winning and I actually care about getting our policies implemented. So what that means is we need to adjust. We need to be strategic. We need to be intelligent. We need to know what to do and when to do it, what to say and when to say it. And if you want to be an edgy subculture group, by all means, that's your prerogative. Then you use whatever slogans you want. You use whatever approach you want. But my point is just don't expect to win and don't expect to actually get your stuff implemented if that's the route you go. And, you know, so, I mean, again, another great example is, is if you want to do the ACOB stuff, all cops are bastards, and you want to do, like, the defund the police stuff, that might make you feel good in your little subgroup, and you might think as a matter of principle this is something I support or whatever it might be, but you're turning off the overwhelming majority of the country if you say stuff like that. And you're turning off the overwhelming majority of the country if you put race before class and before a universal approach. But guess what, guys? At the end of the day, it's all gravy anyway. It's all positive anyway. And the reason it's positive is that it is true when you bring about class justice and when you have universal programs and universal policies, it has been empirically shown if they're truly class-focused and truly universal, that does have a disproportionate impact on racial injustice, and it helps bring about more racial justice. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every race issue is solved if you fix the class problem and you have universal programs, but it does mean a lot of them are. It definitely means a lot of them are. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Okay, so we do have to address the other issues that are racialized, we do have to address them, the ones that aren't fixed by a class and universal approach, we're going to have to address them on their own merits and fix it on its own merits. We have to do that. But just understand that you do bring about a lot more racial justice just by doing the universal approach and the class approach, which turns out benefits everybody as well. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, Amazing findings, and, um, but I also thought it was relatively intuitive as well, that by definition, to bring in more people, you want to be less identitarian and less sectarian, and um, that's what they find here. So, and just to be clear, just so everybody understands, they didn't go into this study with that in mind. Like, they weren't trying to prove the thing that they already believed. And so, you know, you could read more on the study if you want. You could read more of the details on the study if you want. But um, suffice to say, this is the approach that I've taken, and I've actually gotten a lot of shit for it, even though it's clearly a correct approach.
All right, next. Oh, God damn it. Now I can't find the LED remote thing. Ah! Ah! Am I not going to be able to change the lights behind me the rest of the show? Uh, 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 I got it. I'm a genius. This story pissed me off because uh, it really shows that we have at least two very different Americas. So uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal. The newest status symbol for high net worth homeowners, trophy trees in search of the perfect garden the super rich are paying upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring in huge old trees by helicopter, barge, and flatbed truck. The rich are now buying designer trees. This is at a time when tens of millions of Americans don't have health insurance. Half of working people in this country make $30,000 a year or less. Pre-COVID, pre-COVID, it was nearly 80% of the country living paycheck to paycheck. Over 30% of the country can't make their rent or pay mortgage. Hundreds of thousands of homeless people, including tens of thousands of homeless veterans in this country, our infrastructure is doing terribly. It, it gets a grade of, I think, C now, C minus now. It was, it was D for a little bit. Now I think it's C. So we've improved a little bit, but not very much. And the ultra-rich, because they're undertaxed, by the way, there was a, a report that came out year or two ago, which showed that for the first time in U.S. history, billionaires pay an effectively lower tax rate than your average American. Because they're the ones with the loopholes and deductions and the team of lawyers. And so we don't even have a flat tax. We have like a regressive tax in this country now. On paper, it's progressive. When you factor in the, the loopholes and the deductions, some of the wealthiest people pay less than your average American. And so... Now, especially after Trump's tax cut, by the way, that's the main reason why we now have a regressive tax code. But with all that extra money that they're swimming in, the ultra-rich are buying designer trees. By the way, the article is fascinating. It really goes into details about how they go about moving these trees. They really do search far and wide for the oldest, best tree they think they can find. And, you know, there's a real snob effect going on, too, just like with wines, how like, you know, to an extent, it's the older, the better, but it's also where it's grown. And then they have a whole culture that's developed around it with the wine tasting. And there's a lot of the snob effect going on. And so now there's a big snob effect with designer trees where they find the exact right one. And they give an example in the article. I love this. The, the singer Enrique Iglesias was arguing with the guy who owns the company. And Enrique was saying, I want this tree to bend towards my house because it bent a certain way. And and the guy who was the expert on the tree, who's responsible for bringing it in, was like, no, no, the way it's supposed to be is away from the house for reasons X, Y, and Z. And he was like, no, for reasons A, B, and C, I want it bending towards my house. 
And uh, so he put it in the way Enrique wanted. Then Enrique called like a year later and was like, I need you to put it the other way now. Imagine having the wealth to buy a designer tree and then have it moved because you didn't like the way it was pointing. When other people, what was the number? There was some number about Americans who were going to food banks, which was mind blowing. It was like, it was some insane, don't quote me on this, but it was like 40 or 50% of the country at one point was food insecure. And they would go to a food bank to get food in, during the COVID crisis. And Enrique Iglesias is buying designer trees and switching it around, moving it back and forth. Listen, I don't want to sound like a demagogue here, but the reason I'm pointing this out is very simple. We need better redistributive policies. And I don't care what your view is on, are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? Whatever it might be. In either framework, you can make the argument for what I'm saying. The argument of higher taxes on the wealthy, better redistributive policies to ameliorate all of the unintended consequences and the ills of capitalism, the extreme wealth and income inequality. You know, again, there was a time in this country where the top marginal tax rate was 90%. I think it was as high as 93% under Dwight Eisenhower, a conservative Republican. Not very conservative by today's standards, but a Republican. And granted, again, people didn't actually pay that marginal rate because loopholes, deductions, and all that stuff, but the effective rate was about 45%. Now it's way lower than that. And so we need to tax the wealthy and redistribute and give people a chance at a decent life, give people a chance, give them health care, give them education, give them paid vacation time, give them higher wages. Because the way it's going now, man, oh, even though I don't think there's going to be a revolution, it's like they're begging for a revolution. And by the way, my theory, as everybody knows, is I don't think there's going to be a revolution because there's too many wonderful distractions in today's day and age. You know, there's video games, there's computers, there's the Internet, there's Netflix. There's, there's just so many wonderful distractions where you can have your own little niche community and be okay, even if you're materially struggling, that there, there's not going to be a fucking revolution. But on paper, it's like they're begging for it. Designer trees, man. Designer trees as the country starves and doesn't have health care. Tax them. Raise taxes on the wealthy. Redistribute to the people to make it at least a little bit closer to an actual meritocracy. Next. What about the Republican war on free speech, which is ongoing? The other, other day we discussed a story about uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, banning free speech. And he did that by saying, if you're at a protest and anybody in the protest is violent, you could be locked up. And you have to stay in prison until you get time in front of a judge. So you might be locked up for a few days. Because you happen to be at a protest where somebody threw a rock or something. This is banning free protest is what it is. And he admitted, like, we're trying to reduce protest. That's why we're doing this. So you're banning free speech. That's what it is. Well, guess what? It's not just Ron DeSantis. Take a look at this. This is from the New York Times. And uh, Reed J. Epstein says, new, Republicans in 34 states 
have introduced legislation to crack down on protesters. They'd bar people from student loans and state aid, boost penalties for unlawful assembly, and immunize drivers who strike protesters in the street. This is incredible. This is incredible. So there's a lot made of cancel culture and lefties who want to deplatform people and take away their free speech. There's a lot made of that. But what's interesting is that every time one of those issues arises, you'll notice it's actually not legally speaking a free speech issue. Because legally speaking, it's the government cannot take away your free speech. Technically, under our law, even though I don't agree with this, corporations can. I don't think that should be the case. I would change that law like this. But the way our system works now, they're allowed to do that. So oftentimes, when the right flips out about a crackdown on free speech, it's because some corporation bans some conservative voice or something, and they're angry about it. Funny enough, these issues here, this is actually cracking down on free speech, and it's illegal, and it's unconstitutional. This wouldn't get through a federal court. This would never. This would get slapped down before it reaches the Supreme Court, but if it reached the Supreme Court, they would scornfully slap down these laws. Whereas, again, with the cancel culture stuff where the lefties go too far, usually it has nothing to do with the government. And again, for the record, I'm against even private companies firing people for their free speech, and everybody knows I'm pretty much an absolutist on this issue. But this is actually against the Constitution. This is unconstitutional. This is illegal. And it's the Republicans who are pushing the crackdown on free speech, officially. And the nature of these laws, it's beyond grotesque. So if you show up to one of these protests where anybody gets violent, sorry, you can't get student loans and you can't get state aid. So what, like, I guess maybe even no, like, unemployment in some instances. You lose your job, you need some money, you can't get the money because you were once at a protest where somebody threw a rock. You didn't do it, somebody else did it, doesn't matter. Even if somebody else did it, there should be consequences, but then they're freed and they could fully participate in society. None of this weird scarlet letter bullshit where you're blocked off from certain aspects of society. And there's been a number of the laws now that say, if you happen to unintentionally run over protesters, what are you going to do? No consequences for that. Think about what you're incentivizing when you say that. And they're passing these laws. This is after we already know what happened what was it, in Charlottesville with the far-right guy who drove over um, Heather, I'm blanking on her name. I think it's Heather, Heather Heyer, I believe her name is. Let's see. Heather Heyer. Yeah, Heather Heyer is her name. She was run over by a far-right, functionally a terrorist, because the person did violence for political reasons, um, that happened, and now Republican state governments are like, if protesters happen to get run over, tee-hee-hee, as long as it was inadvertent, what are you going to do? Tee-hee-hee. So look, look at the stuff they're incentivizing. So I, listen, bottom line, I don't want to hear another word from anybody on the right. Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, Steven Crowder, you don't actually care about free speech if you're not loudly condemning this. Because this is exactly the thing you claim to hate. This is cancel culture. This is censorship. That's what this is. And so 
man, they're just such frauds. They're such charlatans. The issue they claim to care about the most, here's a real crackdown on it. And all you hear? Crickets, bitch. Crickets. Unlike them, we're principled, and uh, I support free speech across the board. And this is without a doubt the biggest crackdown on free speech now. These anti-protest laws, and it reminds me of the anti-BDS laws. The laws that crack down on pro-Palestine activism. Now we have a whole new slate of these laws, you know, geared at protests. And so the right on this front is deeply, deeply authoritarian. All right, next, back to Pat Robertson. I know all of you are excited about that. I got Butterfingers today, man. I can't hold on to my LED remote. This is bullshit. Pat Robertson went from not existing to now we're covering him like 100 times. Here we go. Pat Robertson still exists and is still somehow on TV. They prop up his carcass with a broomstick and let him mumble. So uh, here he is talking about universal basic income. This ought to be good. A lot of this is terrible idea. Some of it's not too bad. There was a, a few years ago, uh, there was a program for drug addicts, and the government paid like $100 or $200 or $300 to drug addicts. But what did they do? They took the drug money uh, that was given to them, one of them bought more drugs. That was counterproductive. Then there were, there were programs that gave money to people, but then they said, you get this subsidy, but you can't earn any other money. So that was a disincentive to work, and that was a bad program. But the idea of having something for food and basic necessities based on on actual need, but to pass out money to every citizen in America would be insanity, it would bankrupt the country, and it would just be foolish. And why would anybody have to work? You know, it's like the communists used to say, uh, you know, we make believe we work and they make believe they pay us. I mean, it was, it was kind of like a game and nobody did anything and the economy went to pieces. We can't have that. And if there's no incentive to work, then why would anybody want to go to work? And we can't have that. So, you know, the idea of just giving, regardless of who they are, giving a check from the government, it's utterly insane. Let's hope it never happens, Terry. So I'm glad to hear that Pat Robertson is going to be returning every single penny of his Social Security check, which, if my math is correct, he's been on for about 174 years. That's what Social Security is, Pat. Everybody over a certain age, I think you get to pick. It's either 65 or 63, something like that. Um, Everybody over a certain age in this country gets a check. Now, is Pat Robertson going to go out there and crusade for banning Social Security? Actually, you know what, Pat? Don't answer that. Because he's independently wealthy, he doesn't need that check, and so maybe he will argue for that. But the evidence is in, son. It was a gigantic, gargantuan, colossal success. 
we cut the poverty rate. God, I forgot the numbers, but it was something like it was between 20 and 30 percent, the poverty rate among elderly folks in the United States. And then we cut it to like below 10 percent because of Social Security. And by the way, it is one of the most phenomenally popular programs in this country. So anytime somebody acts like these ideas are crazy, just remind that we already have it. We have it with Social Security, with people over a certain age, and everybody loves it. So you can't, you can't just dismiss this out of hand when it already exists and it's wildly popular. They also have a UBI program in Alaska. Now, last time I checked, uh, did Alaska fall apart? Did everybody stop working in Alaska? No, turns out they didn't. Turns out every, everything's working swimmingly. Um, so let's go through this. He brings up, there's this program where they gave drug addicts money, and guess what? They bought more drugs. Uh, first of all, there's a decent chance he's making up this program. There's a decent chance he's making that up. Um, second of all, am I really outraged if drug addicts get more drugs, but they get it in a safe environment? No. I would much rather have my money go towards that than bombing innocent brown people overseas. I'm glad I could give somebody a couple hours of happiness if they get their dose and it's not going to kill them. Okay, now, I, listen, I get it. My position on that is not the majority position, I understand. But I do think Pat's making up some, if not all, of that. There was a program for drug addicts where they gave them $100 and then they bought more drugs. I don't know what he's talking about. But anyway, even assuming that's right, I'll save my... Uh, my moral outrage and my indignation for things that I actually think are morally outrageous. Um, then he says, there's programs that gave people money and told them they can't work, and then they didn't work. Again, I think he's making this stuff up or, or massively twisting it. Is there a program where they give you money and say, please, whatever you do, don't work, do nothing, and I'll keep giving you money? Um, then he says, quote, to pass out money to every citizen in America is insanity, and it would bankrupt the country. There's a lot to say to respond to this. Notice when he doesn't say we're bankrupting the country. Has Pat Robertson ever said we're going to bankrupt the country at any of the massive Wall Street bailouts that we've done, corporate bailouts that we've done, endless wars that we wage? Anytime we pass a new military budget that's way bigger than the previous military budget, does he ever say, how are we going to afford this? This is going to bankrupt the country. He never says, never says it, ever, ever. And by the way, we're also not going to bankrupt the country. We're the world's reserve currency. We control our own currency. You know, modern monetary theory and current economic thinking is that we could basically do whatever we want with the money supply. The only check on that would be inflation. And when inflation starts happening, then you take the measures that you need to take in order to reduce it. So this idea of like, viewing the U.S. federal government like it's a, a family's personal budget, it's just not, that's not true. That's not accurate. That's not the way this stuff functions. But I wouldn't expect Pat, expect Pat Robertson to know that. But what I do expect him to do is exactly what he's doing here, which is anytime we're talking about a program for regular people, that's when you say, we can't afford this, it's going to bankrupt us, whenever it's for the elites or whenever it's for endless war, you know, the Jesus man doesn't say anything against the endless wars. Um, then we'll get to the, the biggest part here. He says getting a, getting a check from the government is, quote, insane. And he says, if there's no incentive to work, then why would anybody go to work? But that's just the thing, Pat. There is incentive to work. And unfortunately for you, 
we've done the studies. So we just had that pilot program that came out of the uh, place in California. I think it was Stockton, California. It was the mayor, Michael Tubbs. He did a, a UBI experiment. I think he was, it was only 500 bucks or whatever that people got in this pilot program. And guess what? They crunched the numbers on it. The money went towards necessities like over 90% of the time. It went to, you know, food. It went to the electric bill. It went to rent. It went very, it, it was less than 10% of it went to anything that was like, you know, um, entertainment focused or whatever. So we are running the studies and the studies are clear. People need this money and they use this money in the, a very responsible way. In fact, the thing that stuck with me the most from that pilot program, as my co-host Crystal Ball explained to me, is that there was one person who was working this job. It was a terrible job. They didn't want to work there anymore. But they didn't have the time to go look for a new job because they had to work like six or seven days a week. And so by getting this $500, you know what? That allowed him to take a day off of work, go interview for a new job, and then he got the new job. And it was better pay and he was happier. So this idea that, oh, if you give people some money, they're not going to want to work. Human beings are human beings. Maybe a small percentage of people wouldn't want to work if you give them enough money to survive on, but we're not even talking about necessarily giving people enough money to survive on. We're talking about giving people the absolute bare minimum. Again, is there going to be a small percentage that says, I'll take the bare minimum and check out? Sure. But that's a small price to pay to give everybody else a decent, reasonable floor, a moral floor, wherein they then go get a job and try to find something that's more fulfilling and allows them to uh, use their creative abilities and allows them to feel like they have meaning and purpose. So he's wrong about everything here. Getting a check from the government is not insane. It's called social security. What we're talking about now with universal basic income is social security for all. Maybe a small percentage will check out of the system. Fine, that's their prerogative. The overwhelming majority are still going to get jobs, still going to be responsible, and now they just have that little bit extra, which helps cushion the blow of living in such a rapacious capitalist system. So he's just wrong. Uh, you know, here we have a multimillionaire who pretends to be, you know, so Jesus focused. And he's like, definitely no pennies for the peasants. Definitely none. Don't give any pennies to the peasants. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's harsh. And especially now where we live in a country where 80% of people live paycheck to paycheck, tens of millions have no health insurance, and he's not in favor of giving people a little bit of help, a little bit of help that's been empirically proven to work. No, not in favor of it. Very un-Jesus-like, if you ask me. All right, next. Fox News is hilarious. Uh, it's one of the only places you can go where you can listen to them for like five or ten minutes. And at no point in the entire five or ten minutes do they say anything that makes sense. So this is a shorter clip. It's about a minute long. But you're going to see exactly that happens here. Biden essentially, is, as Jillian said, uh, going to take a victory lap of what he's been able to accomplish so far. Some of the things he promised on the campaign trail that are going to be missing from his speech tonight, uh, missing lower prescription drug prices. Not going to be talking about that. They're going to be talking about expanding Medicare uh, eligibility. And this is really important. And I know a lot of uh, you watching have been curious about the estate tax. 
he will not be including that campaign plan to raise the estate tax from 40 to 45 percent or lower the exemption from 11 million to 3.5 million because there are a lot of people, particularly family farm owners, who are very concerned about that particular decision. Yeah. If it went in, they would be sunk. Yeah, he, uh, he'll get around to it, trust me. Uh, America, you elected Bernie Sanders, you just didn't know. That's amazing. So they spend the time to list off the nominally left-wing things that Biden is not going to do, and doofus Brian Kilmeade is like, America, you elected Bernie Sanders, you just don't know it. He just went through a list of good things, left-wing things, that Biden is not doing, and they still said, you're Bernie Sanders. By the way, I wish, I wish we elected Bernie Sanders, and or I wish Biden started acting like Bernie Sanders. He's not. He's not. I wish, I wish, it would be such a lovely, wonderful, beautiful country if that was the case. But he says, okay, so here's what Biden is not going to push for now. Lowering prescription drug prices. I know, we just covered that story. Why? Because of the impact of big pharma and lobbyists and special interests that basically own the government, own both political parties. Uh, he's not going to talk about expanding Medicare accessibility. So in other words, now you have a, a number of Democratic lawmakers who are saying, hey, as part of the next reconciliation bill, expand Medicare, lower the age to 55, or lower the age to you know, the earliest, or the latest, I should say, 60. So now you have a number of Democrats who want that. Biden is not going to push for that. Okay, that's terrible. Instead, he wants to do $200 billion of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. It was just a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies. So he's not going to do the left-wing thing. Then they talk, oh, he's backing off the estate tax increase. The estate tax only, uh, you know, only hits people who have over $11 million in net worth. That's a fraction of the top 1%. Then the idea was, oh, we're going to lower that threshold to $3.5 million. So if you have a net worth of $3.5 million or more, you get hit with the estate tax. The Fox host says, oh, a lot of family farms were mad about that, and they would be sunk if that passed, so they're not doing it. Do you hear yourself? Net worth of over $3.5 million, again, I don't know, that's probably the top 1%, maybe 2%, something like that, third percentile at most. And he's saying family farms will be sunk. That's not a family farm, son. That's not somebody scraping to get by. A net worth of $3.5 million. Are you kidding me? But I love that. After a detailed, extensive list, here are the left-wing things Biden is backing off of. Meathead Brian Kilmeade is like, you guys elected Bernie Sanders. No, based off of what the list they just ran through, we elected Donald Trump. That's who we elected, based off that list. That's actually not fair, because Biden has been better than Trump in many ways. But still, based off that list, basically... What Ducey just said is, hey, Brian, kill me. Biden agrees with you on all these things. And kill me's like, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, socialism, Marxism, Venezuela. <laughs> he doesn't use his brain. So listen, what's the takeaway here, guys? No matter what a Democrat does, they're going to go right back to that same playbook. Scary socialism, Bernie Sanders, Marxism, Che Guevara, Venezuela, Vuvuzela. No matter what, they're going to say that. So why not actually fight for good things? The answer is very sad, of course, which is Biden just doesn't agree with me and you and Bernie as to what constitutes good things. He's a lot more right than us. He's a lot more right wing. He's a lot more centrist and corporatist. So here we are. But there you have it. 
keep being a moderate Republican and the Republicans will give you zero credit and now just call moderate Republicanism Bernie Sandersism. All right, y'all, final story of the day. Final story of the day. Final story of the day. Fox, Fox and Friends to be specific, they decided to have a conversation about um, taxes, and it doesn't go well. I think Brian Kilmeade's brain stops working pretty quickly in the segment. Um, what's your name? Is this Ainsley Earhart? I think it is. Uh, she also is struggling to rub together a few brain cells in order to come up with a thought. Um, Steve Ducey somehow comes out of this looking like Albert Einstein, which is a crazy sentence to say. But here they are discussing taxes and socialism. And when they talk about raising taxes on the wealthy people, the majority of people in this country are okay with that. So if they're not wealthy. That, 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 that is not true. You think the majority of the country wants their taxes raised? No, no, no. They're okay with raising taxes on the wealthy. rich. If you ask people, do you want to go to Disneyland every day? That's popular. But is it logical? Is it feasible? Is it practical? No. You can't have every, but the most American people know. You can't be sober and expect all these free things and have a capitalist free market society. I just remember the poll that uh, we cited last year uh, about this time, and I want to say it was a Reuters poll, showed that something like 65% of Americans were okay with jacking up taxes uh, to pay for things that they wanted. And these are, these are politically popular. So jacking up other people's taxes to get something you want has got to be very popular. Brian, if, you're, if you used to have a job pre-COVID, and now you're getting a paycheck from the government, and it's more than what you made, they like that, yes, even though it's our money. Right. And, and if you get your college paid for, and you don't make okay. a lot of money, they like that. But you have to understand our something. money is very expensive. That is, called, that is called socialism. I agree. And that is not a successful economy. The reason why we work, we have a free market capitalist economy. That's not what we're working towards here. Sooner or later, someone's going to have to work for a living, earn that money, and be willing to give up seven of every $10 that they earn. And when the American people are forced to look at this holistically, yep. that is not popular. It's sad when you are giving more money to the government than you are putting in your bank account. I'm not going to lie. Sad. Hold on. Let me play that last part back. So I was trying to type out as and they were talking. When they talk about raising to give up seven of every $10 that they earn. When the American people are forced to look at this holistically, yep. that is not popular. It's sad when you are giving more money to the government than you are putting in your bank account. I'm not going to lie. Sad. There's so much to say here. There's so much to break down. So at the end when, uh, I think it's Ainsley says, it's not okay when you're forced to give more money to the government than you're putting in your bank account. Allow me to retort. 
if you're making $500 million a year, and by the way, the CEO of, I think it was Blackstone, is making $600 million. But if you're making $500 million and you only get to take home $200 million and the rest of that money is going to go towards health care and education and infrastructure and paid vacation time for people, am I going to be upset? In fact, I'm going to cheer that on. And if you are upset by that, you need to rethink your priorities because the real question is what kind of a system allows somebody to earn the equivalent of $500 million a year at the same time you have some people who work full-time jobs, bust their ass, and only pull in 25 or 30 grand a year. So really I think the problem is this concept of like, did they earn that? Nobody earns $500 million a year. Nobody earns $200 billion of wealth in, in net worth. That's what Jeff Bezos has. Don't tell me he earned that. Don't tell me he earned it. So a lot of the problem here is this misperception, this flawed perception on what's earned and what's not earned. They live under the impression, misimpression, that we already live in a meritocracy. We don't. And so when she says, give more money to the government than you're putting in your own bank account, I honestly say, it depends. It depends how much money you make. It depends what you do. And there are plenty of instances where I think more than half of what you earn should go in the bank. It should uh, go to people's health care and jobs and education and an infrastructure, so on and so forth. So the real problem is the way we think about this stuff. Okay? Um, I love when Brian Kilmeade just makes it up and says, when people are forced to look at raising taxes on the rich, it's actually not popular. You just made that up. Steve Ducey was correct. Every poll shows it's overwhelmingly popular to raise taxes on the wealthy. And Brian Kilmeade's like, I don't accept that. So when you give people the whole picture and you look at it holistically, that, then it's not popular. You can't just assert that. There's no evidence for that. Because it turns out people have eyes and brains, and they actually understand the phenomenal levels of wealth and income inequality that we have in this country. And they realize it's ridiculous that Jeff Bezos has a $200 billion net worth. At the same time, half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. Tens of millions have no health insurance. People see this stuff, and they're not okay with it. Um, and then uh, Kilmeade says at one point, well, people are going to give up seven of every $10 that they earn. No, they're not, first of all. I wish that in some instances that was the case with the wealthiest people in the country. But no, they're not. But really, he's bitching and he's upset because in his social circle, they are in that top marginal tax, break, tax bracket. You know, And when you add in state, and, and local and federal taxes, he probably does pay about 45% of his income in, um, in taxes. But let's see what his salary is. Brian Kilmeade's salary. $4 million per year. So he might only take home $2 million per year. And he cries about that. And he bitches about that. So he thinks that's a severe injustice. Which, again, I think even the system that allows Brian Kilmeade to make $2 million a year for being a rank, disgusting propagandist, we might need to reevaluate that system. But do I like it more with him taking home two or four? Two, two. all day. Um, and then 
there was there was a there's a mask off moment there. I don't know if you caught it, but you had I think it, again Ainsley. I don't know if that's her name, and I don't know why I don't know if that's her name because I watch Fox News enough where I should know. But she says at one point, even though it's our money, when she talks about raising taxes. So in other words, she knows the overwhelming majority of the country doesn't make nearly as much money as I make and that we make. And so when she talks about raising taxes on the wealthy, she says, even though it's our money, people want to raise taxes. So in other words, it's very selfish and specific to her and her fellow co-hosts there and the top 1%. Even though, hey, hands off our money. That's the way she views it. And again, I think that's a real mask off moment because it's a very us versus you mentality. Like she knows, hey, I'm in the 1% and you guys are in the 99%. I'm going to rep the 1%. That's what that's an admission of. Uh, and I love the comparison from Kilmeade. Uh, yeah, sure, people want to raise taxes on the wealthy. I bet people also want to go to Disneyland every day. Well, if that's the comparison you're going to make, allow me to say, I guess in Scandinavia they go to Disneyland every day. I guess in a lot of European nations they go to Disneyland all day because they have higher taxes on the wealthy. And guess what? Those systems function a hell of a lot better than ours. So maybe going to Disneyland every day is the answer. Because if that's what raising taxes on the wealthy is, sign me up. And then he makes the comparison, oh, this is socialism. That's not a successful economy. Sooner or later, somebody's going to have to work for a living. As if in social democracies, nobody works. Of course they do. They have similar unemployment rates to ours. Many times their unemployment rate is lower than ours. I mean, it's just every single argument he makes and belief he has on this is like a right-wing bumper sticker, you know? Like, there's no real thought, and there's no way, if you asked him to define socialism, there's no way he could give you an actual definition, when probably the most common one is the workers owning the means of production. You know, he's not, he doesn't think of it that way. And clearly he hasn't ever, he, he just has such a childish perspective in this entire conversation. Um, and then, of course, the, the best part was actually, actually the very beginning when Steve Ducey says raising taxes on the wealthy is popular. And kill me, this shows you how bright he is. He says, that's not true. You think a majority of the country wants their taxes raised? That's not what he said. He said raising taxes on the wealthy is popular. I swear to God, they're having conversations with half a brain here. Kilmeade's brain really sputtered out and shit the bed there in the segment. Like, it just wasn't working. So... Like I said, Steve Ducey somehow came out of that looking like a genius, and he said basically nothing. But saying nothing is a lot better than doing a rank, dumb, pure, laissez-faire capitalist propaganda. And the reality is he doesn't even really support unfettered capitalism because that would mean a lot of the businesses that have been rescued would fail because he supports all those Wall Street bailouts. He supports the elites being able to loot the treasury. So he does support welfare, but it's welfare for the rich and the corporations that Brian Kilmeade supports. So he's basically wrong about absolutely everything, and he thinks it's the biggest injustice in the world when you talk about raising taxes on the wealthy, even though the best economic period in U.S. history was when we had high marginal tax rates on the wealthy. Now, you can make a causation correlation argument, hey, how much is that linked? And I'll leave the interpretation up to you on that. You know, you could view it however you want to view it. But the bottom line is, it certainly wasn't anti-growth. It certainly wasn't something that held the country back. It certainly wasn't something that led to people not working or whatever it may be. In fact, it was called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S., and that top marginal rate was between 70% and 90%. But Brian Kilmeade doesn't like it. 
because he's only allowed to take home $2 million instead of the $4 million that he thinks he earned. Okay. All right, guys. I love you, baby. I love you. Um, we have an amazing guest on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. You're not going to want to miss it. I swear you're not going to want to miss it. Go sign up on Substack, uh, $5 a month to get the video version of every show a day early. This is going to be one of the best ones yet. So I'll talk to you guys. Much love. I'm out.